นะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสิเราไม่ได้ทำอะไรที่เราไม่ได้ทำอะไรที่เราไม่ได้ทำอะไรที่เราไม่ได้ทำอะไรที่เราไม่ได้ทำอะไรที่เราไม่ได้ทำอะไร
We can, of course, reason our way out of prejudices and irrational feelings, but when groups get together, the rational side can easily get lost in an incredible mass power. Sorry, and an, and an incredible mass power can develop, as in the case of football hooliganism, for example. I'm sure that this kind of thing happened in Rwanda, where some kind of tribal common ground was reached, and an emotion aroused that infected everybody beyond reason. It wasn't reasonable, and yet many people participated in mass slaughter. So, feeling can't be trusted either. Finally, there is this word intuition, by which I mean intelligence. What I'm talking about here is an intelligence that is not gained through learning, but is natural. So it includes instinctual intelligence, as well as the ability to be aware. Wisdom comes from that intuitive sense. There are many books on wisdom and wisdom teachings, and they are certainly, and they, and they are certainly wise teachings, but just memorizing them and repeating them doesn't mean we're wise. We can memorize all the words of Confucius and still be utter fools. Wisdom, then, is the spontaneous ability we have of dealing with time and place, the appropriate response to conditions of the here and now. When you're meditating and letting go of everything, your thoughts cease, your feelings calm down. And what is left when there are no thoughts and feelings dominating consciousness is intuition, an intuitive intelligence. As soon as you try to think about that, however, you're lost again. Intuition is an act of surrender, a relaxation into awareness, which actually doesn't seem like anything at all. You have to give up the idea of trying to define it, just to trust the ability to recognize. This is it. This is mindfulness. This is intuitive awareness, sati sampajanya. It is an inclusiveness rather than a divisive function of mind. So in this um, uh, beginning part of the talk, Lumpur is making some uh, <coughs> very um, general comments about thinking and feeling and how in our society both of those get say, um, uh, praised or amplified or have a strong role to play. Um, the, uh, <coughs> the inheritance that we have of, um, uh, say, our intellectual ancestry and background to, in, to Western thought and to education and such like from the Greeks and um, the uh, uh, Judeo-Christian philosophers uh, over the centuries, and particularly the sense of, of thought being praised as some kind of ultimate reality, um, like you, as you have in the, uh, the philosophy of uh, Plato, where you know, a thought is taken to be the most sort of pure and perfect thing, and a, a sort of uh, uh, a, uh, an ideal image is somehow more real than... Uh, uh, you know, a mental, an ideal mental image is more real. So the the sort of the um, the kind of ideal form of of a of a chair or a table is something that the mind is drawing upon, and that's uh, the sort of root of all chairness or the root of all tableness or, or personhood. Uh, the mind takes that that ideal form and then uses it to to sort of describe these uh, solid and, and tangible ones. But the thought or the idea of it is somehow taken as to be more real, more perfect, more pure than any kind of physical actuality. So even though we might not even have heard of that or, or, or be um, sort of aware of that very much, that trickles down through our, our uh, conditioning, our society and our, uh, our ways of, of operating so that uh, it's very, very common for us to assume that any thought that goes through our minds is true. And that when we, we think, 
uh, our thought is a is an accurate representation of reality. And um, this is uh, uh, often goes without saying, without any kind of comment, even when what you think now is different from what you thought a year ago or a week ago. <laughs> you were right then, and you're right now. And so that uh, you know, it doesn't make sense, but that's often how we we function. And um, when uh, I've often mentioned how when I, I first came into the monastery in Thailand, I hadn't really done any kind of meditation uh, to speak of before, and uh, I couldn't understand why the this part of the the sort of monastery jargon, the sort of um, uh, conversation of the of the monks and novices uh, that were there, they kept talking about views and opinions and attachment to views and opinions, and um, and so. Uh, it seemed kind of weird and, and just uh, annoying. I said, what do you mean? It's, it, this isn't an opinion, it's a fact. And they would say, well, it's your opinion that that's a fact. I said, no, don't be stupid. No. <laughs> this is how it is. And, and just because I, a particular thing that I believe to be true, I would take, this is, this is a fact. And if you don't agree with it, well, you're wrong. Because if I think it, it's true. Yeah. And I'll just argue until you give up or <laughs> we go our separate ways. And so that... Uh, uh, but it was it was really striking over those first few weeks because my first reaction was like, well, this is this is ridiculous, and, and my whole life, you know, that you you had an opinion, you had a particular point of view, and then you argue it or or just hang, or hold on to it and take it to be real. And then I began to notice how something that I was I was sort of vigorously defending or, or thinking to be true, you know, six weeks ago, I was now thinking something different, and, and, it, and so it slowly dawned on me like. Yeah, ding. <laughs> the light began to come on. Oh, that's interesting, because I thought something different six weeks ago, and now I think this. Well, if I was if I was right then, I can't be right now. If I'm right now, I couldn't have been right then. Oh, that's what they mean about views and opinions. All right, they change. <laughs> They're not dependable, and it really took quite a while to get a sense of of changing the view of thought as not being some kind of ultimately real and solid thing, uh, and that uh, an opinion or an idea. Um, and so that, uh, as Lumpur points out here, in this sort of very extreme um, uh, situations where you can be, uh, say, like the, the scientists who were developing the, the H-bomb, they were, you know, uh, and the, the, the atom bomb in the Second World War and the H-bombs and all the, the nuclear weapons since that time, there have been you know, extremely intelligent people, highly qualified, the sort of people who are coming top of their class, who are you know, very adept thinkers, and people who can calculate, people who are gifted mathemat mathematicians or engineers and, and so on. And, um, but yet the, the end result of their work is devices that will, uh, that the only purpose for their existence is to blow up tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of human beings and to destroy uh, you know, life and uh, the you know the living environment poison it for for huge periods of time. So that um, say the divorcing of the uh, the say the intellectual act from the results of that act is, is something that is a, the downside of thinking that we can something can be logical or reasonable or make perfect sense, but the uh, the impact of those thoughts or where they're heading or what they or what they bring with them. The mind can be um, of insensitive to or, or, or blocked off from, and then as he's talking about feeling, similarly, um, the downside of, of feeling is that when you are, say, swept up in a particular group, you've got a kind of group think uh, um, 
mentality like Theravada Buddhism, yay, we're the best. You know. <laughs> um, not that you know, we're that sort of flag-waving, <laughs> marching Theravadans, but uh, um, that sense of groupthink where you know this is our team, this is what we are, this is right, and we, we go along with what the what the leader says. And that, that, that feeling that uh, is the, the driving force, that feeling of belonging, that feeling of, of, of goodness, the feeling of, of rightness. And um, so it's not so much tied up with logical thought, but it's, it's rousing a, a, a sense of, of emotion and a, 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 a kind of common emotion. And again, that we, we do love that. that and that's, that's why people, as he says, go to football matches, Get excited about about football games, or or people um, <coughs> watch soap operas. You know that the the, uh, the um, uh, it's interesting. I, I, looking at the the news, uh, I, I I get most of my news from uh, Google News, which is sort of a little analysis of different uh, uh, news outlets, and they they always have a whole section just on what's happening in soap operas. The, these are people who don't exist. <laughs> But they can be uh, something that's happening in a soap opera like Emmerdale or EastEnders or Coronation Street. It's right up there with, you know, is Theresa May going to last as prime minister for the night? You know, and it's like, oh, you know, know, major event in Corrie, you know, uh, has he been murdered or has he not? You know, and that they don't exist. These are actors. They're people write scripts. They sit down in rooms and a group of people write a script and they make something happen. And, and yet, that's up there with the, the kind of um, world news. Like, is Donald Trump going to get impeached? Is Theresa May going to uh, survive another week as prime minister? And, uh, and what's happening in Emmerdale? You know? And so, <laughs> I'm not trying to malign anyone who's addicted to Emmerdale Farm or EastEnders or Coronation Street, but uh, we love those emotions. Like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? <gasps> I can't bear it, I can't bear it, I can't bear it. But we love that, I can't bear it feeling. That's why people are watching, because they want that, I can't bear it feeling. Because that's a, a strong emotion. There's a, the mind is, is sort of locked on to that particular event and that possibility. You know, will she, won't she? Will she, won't she? <gasps> she did it! Oh, she didn't really do it. Ha-ha! <laughs> and then you call your friend, did you guess? Did you guess? Yeah, yeah I knew she didn't really do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how much energy gets burnt out of all of that? I'm just making this up, you know, I, I don't... Actually, watch any of those programs, but then <laughs> I'm just ad libbing on what I imagine a lot of that is about, you know. And so, your life is is sort of focused on that kind of uh, that emotion, and you feel alive, and the mind's locked into that sort of. Oh, I can't believe it. That's terrible. My life is ruined. You know, we we love that that shock, that kind of intensity, because at that moment you're not thinking about your taxes. Yeah, you're not thinking about your difficult relationship with your brother, or you're, you're not uh, you're not worrying about whether you should trim the hedge this week or not. It's all gone. It's just, oh, did she? Didn't she? Did she? Didn't she? She did. Oh, she didn't. Oh, everything else has just fallen away, and you've got that one uh, one strong feeling, and the universe is is defined around that. So, competitive sports, blue team and the red team, um, horse racing, boxing. Uh, the Olympics, uh, you know, whatever uh, competitive, um, say, dynamics get uh, uh, so this sort of ritualized warfare: blue team, red team. Uh, you know, which which side uh, which side do you support? Are you 
uh, Atletico Madrid or Real Madrid? You know, are you the are you the uh, <coughs> are you for the uh, the Los Blancos or the other lot, right. or for Barcelona? <laughs> Even worse. I was traveling with with uh, Juan in Spain last year. So. Was introduced to some of the Spanish football dynamics. So the Real, there's the Real people in Madrid and there's the Atletico people. So we, but we love that because we have a sense of affiliation. This is my team. This is my lot. This is my side of the river. Like I was saying in the morning reflection, I'm a man of Kent. I'm not a Kentish man. That's the other lot. Who really cares? But there are people in Kent who do really care. <laughs> it's like there are people in Madrid, you know, who. That's a, a huge thing. So we get a, a, a sense of being, a sense of value from that um, uh, excitement or, or being, when you're offended, your, your group is insulted or, or your, your group wins a prize. Yes, we won. Or, How dare you? Who do you think you are? And we love that kind of charge, that emotional um, burst. And so a lot of the world runs on that feeling. <laughs> If you look through the news, a huge amount of of the news is based around what's triggered those feelings. And as uh, Lumpur Samadhi would often say, you're never going to get a newspaper headline. You're never going to have a banner headline on the on the sun saying, "Buddhist monk breathed in and then breathed out." <laughs> you know, Samadhi practices Anapanasati. Shock horror. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Yeah. The uh, and, uh, uh, but the um, uh, the mind is easily pulled both towards thinking and and feeling and getting caught into those for those various reasons. And then what he's highlighting here is what he calls intuition. So intuitive wisdom or intuitive awareness is his rendering of the Pali term sati sampajanya or sati panya, mindfulness and wisdom, or mindfulness and full awareness. Sampa means uh, Comprehensive or full, uh, anya is, is knowing. So sati sampajanya um, is that uh, a, a comprehensive awareness or, a, or a, an all-round knowing. And that, uh, but he aligns it very much with intelligence. And, but uh, it's an intelligence that he's, uh, he's describing, which is not having a lot of information about something or not being able to recite a lot of facts about something, but rather... Um, that quality of, uh, say, uh, alertness that can recognize what's happening. Or can, or one way I like to describe it is it's a, a pattern-recognizing ability. that The mind can see the orderliness of what's happening and how one thing relates to another. So it's not, it's not uh, particularly about information, but it's about uh, a, that sense of, of how things work, how things work, how things fit together, how things are related, and what the implications are of what you're, uh, what you're feeling or seeing, or how things work, so that it, it's not conceptual. Uh, and he uses the word intuitive to reflect that non-conceptual, and um, uh, say that um, more, um, uh, say, uh, intangible quality. Because you, you, and when you, you're recognizing a pattern of how things fit together, there's not really a calculation going on, but there's a, a, a natural recognition. Like, oh, this, this connects with that, or this reminds me of that, or, or that was, I've seen that pattern before, I know how that works, I saw what happened last time. So the mind isn't necessarily thinking those words, but it's familiar. 
there's a sense of of the order in which things work and so that um uh, uh he's using the word intuition to reflect that quality of say being able to attune to what's happening without necessarily being able to explain it uh, and so that as i mentioned a couple of days ago why he he started to de- use this term intuitive awareness instead of uh, another translation of Satisampajanya's mindfulness and clear comprehension was b- precisely because he said, well, you can be fully aware of something that you don't comprehend. So comprehension means, okay, I know what's going on, I've got an explanation, I've got a clear picture of exactly what's happening here and why. Um, and so he said, yeah, but you can be fully aware of something that is completely mysterious. You have no idea what, uh, why you feel the way you do, but here it is, it's exactly this way. So the mind can be fully aware of it, not attached to it, but not have a clue as to why it's there, <laughs> what it's going to turn into. Uh, uh, and so that he said, he, he said, you know, to include that quality of mystery, of, of wonder, uh, and not to be taking refuge in explaining or inf- information, uh, it's better to use a term like intuition, which is deliberately fuzzy. So uh, uh, it's a um, uh, it's an imp- it's a kind of deliberately imprecise term, <laughs> that, because it, it's trying to give a sense of of a uh, an attunement of the heart to to how things are, and, a, and that quality of hmm, I think this is what's going on. Or, hmm, I think I ought to to hold back here. I think it should move forward. Or, uh, so that sense of of a, an attunement of the heart to what's going on, without having a a, a, a sort of a clear map or an explanation or a a, um, a a way of say putting everything into little boxes and, and arranging it in a in a neat structure. <coughs> yeah. Good question. Uh, well, I'd say it depends a lot on it, because without much samadhi, then the habit of the mind is to jump from one object to another. And the development of, of uh, satisampajanya, uh, intuitive awareness, it's a lot to do with uh, not jumping from one thing to another, <laughs> but letting the attention be on a, a, an object or a thought or an emotion or a situation and letting the, the mind attune to the uh, to uh, in a sense the space around it to 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 fully receive what's there like if there's um, if there isn't much samadhi then uh, the attention won't stay easily on a single object or on a single moment it's always creating more stories around it or, or looking for the next object or uh, so that the ability to hold the attention on on a feeling or a thought, or, uh, and it doesn't have to be dramatic or strong, but just even a neutral feeling. That that's a very important part of it, because uh, the um, when we think of um, say intelligence in an ordinary way, often we say that oh he's got a very quick mind, meaning that's a good thing, <laughs> and so it can easily hop from you know one thing to another like you you've, you know in a finger snap you've got you. Know, uh, sort of five logical conclusions that, that come from a single thought, but uh, to to develop reflective wisdom and this sort of uh, intuitive awareness and such like, then there needs to be that uh, capacity to 
to open the, the, the mind, the heart to what's being experienced. Say, oh, this is a, a delicious taste, or that's a, 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 a painful feeling, or, or that's a person that uh, I, did, I, I don't want to see. So rather than just racing ahead with, oh, how can I get away from that person, or I, I shouldn't have that aversion to them, I should like them instead, and kind of creating a, a blur of activity around that, then the more there is a quality of samadhi, then it, the, the mind can go to, oh, this is the, um, uh, oh, that's a person I didn't want to see feeling. Aha, that's interesting. Where does this come from? So it can stay with what's there and, in a sense, appreciate the space around that. With painful feeling or pleasant feeling or uh, different uh, emotional states, so <clears throat> I would say that the samadhi, particularly in terms of, let's say, like uh, sort of jhanic concentration, like uh, absorbing into a particular object, but the capacity of the mind to attend to the present without getting drawn into conceptual proliferation, without getting lost in in ideation and elaboration around particular thoughts or perceptions or you know, feelings and, and ideas and such like. So uh, <clears throat> the, the skill of concentration is kind of, it's an essential partner to wise reflection. Because otherwise there's the, 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 uh, that real appreciation, that apprehending of what's present in terms of a, a, a thought or an opinion or a feeling, it's only going to be partial. It's like you're, you're, the, the, um, the camera's not still enough to hold to, <laughs> to, to take the picture. It's, kind of moving, it's moving too quickly on to the next thing. It, can't, it needs to be still to, to really receive the, the picture in a, in a complete way. That's how I would understand it. <laughs> It's a, yeah, it's a, a good question, and um, I've used it a lot myself just for that, because with the, developing the listening to the sound of silence, then that gives you a, a, like an automatic sense of the context. Like, so, okay, there's this conversation going on, but I can hear the, the sound of silence in the background. So that reminds me, oh, this is a mental event. There's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Um, and so it helps the mind to keep that in context rather than just focusing solely on the conversation and what the next word is going to be. So that that uh, inner listening and, and, uh, and noticing the, the sound of silence, is, it's uh, uh, continually helping you to notice the screen on which all of the images are being projected, if you like. And the uh, agent simply has got her hand up, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
We can we can mix it all together. No problem. Go ahead. Conscience intuitive. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, didn't it end up as being conscience intuitive? That's the that's what it ended up as. <laughs> Very good. So, uh, uh, and this is what it's, a, it's an interesting thing, trying to find words in these European languages, also Chinese. You know, when translating Dhamma books into into Chinese, that people have to put their heads together and go because of the different, um, uh, say, connotations that different words have, or word structures, what the, what the echoes are in the in the particular languages, or how. Uh, yeah, if you use that word, it will it will remind people of this and this that you know that's not very good. Um, so it really has to be done on a on a sort of piece by piece uh, basis in in different languages. You can't you can't really generalize. But I feel that that sense of exploring with a group of people to to uh, to to uh, consider what what conveys the the um, the sense that is needed is the important thing and. And so that uh, we were in the reading a day or two ago talking about how the the first translators in Europe of the Pali into English and German, French, uh, they weren't meditators, they weren't contemplatives, so they didn't really know from direct experience what it was that they were trying to convey with the words, so the, the words often would end up being really, really weird and, and beside the point. And so that uh, I think that that whole process of, of um, as a exploring the language and trying to find words and, and expressions that convey the, the, the actual practice or the, the actual experience that people are trying to, to put into print is, is a very, very valuable process. And uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that takes decades, but that's okay. <laughs> so anyway, to, uh, uh, to go back to Sister Tisara's point about the sound of silence, and so Lumpur Sumedha does refer to it uh, here and there in these talks. I, I don't know if he will do later on in this one. But that's um, a, a very uh, accessible and powerful tool to sustain that quality of, of context. So when I'm asked to describe what's the difference between mindfulness and mindfulness and, uh, and full awareness or, or sati and sati sampajanya, what the, the usual way I describe it is, so sati is like the... the the basic mechanical process of putting the attention onto an object, onto an experience or a perception, a thought, being aware of an action that's being done or a a, a, a pattern of experience being felt, experience that's being felt. So, and as as Lumpur Chah, Lumpur Sumedha would say, you know, a cat has mindfulness when it's hunting a mouse, or or the 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 birds on the bird feeder, they've got to figure out a place to to land outside my kuti, the the um, the sparrows and the robins and the blue tits and whatnot—they have to. They've got to be mindful of waiting for the 
previous one, the previous feeder to leave before they can <laughs> have a space to land and they can get their food. So animals, they, they need to have that kind of alertness, paying attention and attunement. So I would say that's a, a basic me uh, mechanistic kind of mindfulness. But in, uh, what makes um, Satisampajanya a different quality is that it's not just paying attention to what's being experienced, but also the, uh, there is a, an appreciation of the context. Right? So the time, the place, the situation. Okay, it's now 6.35, so the, the reading began about uh, half an hour or so ago, and I've only got a couple of pages into this chapter, and there's eight pages in this chapter, so I'm now calculating that uh, we're probably not going to get to the end of the chapter by the end of the reading. Um, so I'm aware of the, the 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 context and what has been said already. Um, what points have been made, what points might still be made, and so on. So that that uh, that broader appreciation of the time, the place, the situation. Do people look as though they're able to understand? The people getting up and walking out, are they falling asleep, are they looking kind of you know, despairing? Uh, what what's the uh, the 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 feedback from the from the environment, so that um, the listening to the inner sound, then it's uh, in a sense it's triggering or, or catalyzing that uh, recollection of oh right this is uh, this is a mental event. It's not just this one thing I'm paying attention to, but there's this whole field of, of other uh, say influences that are that are in the mixture. It, this is not just the, the thing I'm choosing to say. But there is also the uh, the uh, other factors that are at play here. So developing that, it helps to say broaden the perspective, and also to uh, to catalyze that recognition that oh, this is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. This is all along with me having this conversation or me moving around in this place. Uh, this is also a set of mental events, patterns arising and passing away. So that that. Um, uh, uh, the inner sound, I like to think of it as, as a kind of a backdrop, or like I was saying, the screen against which the, the images of a film are being projected, or the, the, um, the kind of um, the, the recognizing the, you know, the walls that surround this particular event. So it's, a, uh, a, I say, a, an attention to the, the, the context that an event is taking place in, so that then when that's recollected, then you're helping to say, uh, draw upon that, that greater sensitivity, that greater understanding of, of your own heart. You're kind of using a faculty. So that ordinary mechanistic mindfulness is, is valuable, but uh, and to develop the satisampajanya, mindfulness and clear awareness, then is, is broadening the scope. You're drawing on a, a more profound or more, uh, say, um, wise and sensitive faculty of the heart. And then the final level would be sati, uh, satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom, which is, uh, in a sense, uh, letting go uh, more completely of the, the content of an experience and looking more directly at the process of it. So that it's, uh, say, rather than the content of the words that I'm saying, just to be noticing, oh, this is just, <coughs> this is sound arising and passing away. It's changing. It's anicca, dukkha, anatta. It's, uh, <coughs> it's not, um, anything that's fundamentally real or solid or, or personal. So it's applying those reflections on anicca, dukkha, anatta to the whole uh, flow of experience. So it's a deliberate letting go of the content of experience to 
to be attentive and attuned to the, the process of experiencing. So that, that I would call that a more comprehensive or, or holistic mindfulness. So to continue before we run out of time altogether. Now, concentration practices tend to be centered on focusing on one object and excluding everything else. So when people take up tranquility, samatha practices, they usually have to find a place where there are no harsh impingements. That is because they have to concentrate all their attention on the one point by excluding everything else. What I'm saying is that intuitive awareness is inclusive. It is the point that includes everything, everything that happens. Even the sound of an aeroplane or a lawnmower or whatever belongs in this moment. And from here, there is no attempt to control the mind, but rather to open. There's a sense of opening and relaxing with the present moment. Because this is not divisive, wisdom then starts operating, and we begin to observe how things really are. We notice the body, the breath, the mental state, the door slamming, or whatever. All is included. If we concentrate on the point that excludes, on the other hand, when somebody slams the door, we just feel annoyed. My clumsy person's disrupted my tranquility. Because we think a slamming door doesn't belong. In the point that includes, everything belongs. It isn't a matter of how pleasant or unpleasant the conditions might be. The fact is, they are here. And this is intuitive awareness. They belong. However we are feeling, physically, mentally, emotionally, or, psych or psychically, whether we are in a crazy state of mind, calm and cool, or communicating with devas in the heavenly realms, demons in the lower realms, or whatever, it all belongs. The quality of the experience is not the issue. So this is a very um, uh, say standard way that Lumpur Sumedha would talk about um, these different aspects of practice. So concentration, uh, samatha practice, you, you put the attention onto a single point and deliberately shut everything else out, so the breath or the footsteps or the mantra, whatever it might be. So as, a, uh, an, ex as an expression to, to describe that, he says, this is the point that excludes. So the, the, the attention focuses onto a single point and everything else is, is ignored. And then this other aspect of practice, this quality of opening, uh, open awareness, is in a sense expanding the point to include the whole present moment, the whole field of, of experience of, of the present. So he uses the, the term, the point which includes, as a, a way of describing that. The wisdom faculty develops out of our reflection on impermanence. All conditions are impermanent. And you actually witness impermanence. You don't just project the idea of impermanence onto experience. The wisdom is ripening, and you are seeing the nature of all conditions by witnessing it. It isn't a question of holding the view that everything is impermanent, or believing in it, but of seeing it for yourself. You see it. It's obvious. And that includes everything, whether it's a, whether it's a beautiful deva or a horrific demon. As you trust in this intuitive position, you're interested only in changingness and will therefore not be overwhelmed by beauty or hideousness. Emotional reactions are also included in this intuitive awareness because everything belongs. So, happiness and misery and all external and internal experiences in this moment are received. It might sound as though we ought to focus on, on one thing, because if we received everything, we're just going to be overwhelmed. But that's not the case. 
In fact, if we trust in the intuitive point that includes, our relationship even to chaos and confusion is one of wisdom, rather than of being lost in the chaos. I find this a skillful way of going about things when life gets confusing, which it does sometimes. When things happen and nothing is very clear, when I'm emotionally confused and everything seems to be in a state of amorphous obscurity. Amorphous means kind of all mushed together, all kind of blurry and like uh, stirred up in a, in a kind of um, unified goop. <laughs> amorphous means that they're all, all mixed up together with no particular boundaries. Everything seems to be in a state of amorphous obscurity. This can be rather frightening. Yet when I trust in awareness, I can totally accept that feeling. If I don't trust in it, on the other hand, I get carried away with resentments towards people whom I think are the cause of it. I might try to get at somebody. Do you mean yes or do you mean no? I want clarity and definition. I don't want indecisiveness. I want clarity. My personality is such that I feel much more secure when everything is clear and defined. Personally. As a person. When things are not clear, my personality gets wobbly. So I can't trust personality because it's like that. It's just the way the personality operates. But awareness is beyond the personality. It isn't a thought. It isn't perception. And yet it includes feeling. So it isn't just a cold, icy, kind of sterile witnessing of life like a cold-hearted scientist dissecting frogs or something. It allows for feeling. Feeling then comes out more through the Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity, rather than through emotional habits of liking or wanting this or disliking and trying to get rid of that. Last night's talk about compassion for Hitler was very interesting, because most of us would, uh, would like to feel compassion, maybe even compassion for Hitler, as an ideal. Or an, uh, on an emotional level, however, I feel, well, Hitler really deserves to be tormented in hell for an eternity. I can be quite judgmental. He was so bad, how could anyone have compassion for such a demon? But compassion is not, as John Peacock was saying, a sentimental, feel-good emotion. It is understanding. When you really tune into yourself, how much suffering do you think you've created in your life? Just some little things. I haven't killed anyone or done anything all that bad, but I have suffered enough, even from being basically good. Imagine what it would be like to be really bad. I remember the mean or selfish things that I've done more clearly than the good ones. You never forget those. They're always ready to come into consciousness. So there's a sense of, I'm going to be really careful just for my own good, just so as not to create too much misery in my own mind. Somebody like Hitler, having done what he did, must have suffered enormously. You read stories about his fear and anger, about how he, he didn't have a sense of humor, and took himself too seriously. People were trying to kill him. His life was constantly under threat. At the same time, he must also have had a, a sense of great power. Men can love that feeling of total power, to feel, I'm king of the world, but you can't sustain it. You might have moments where you feel really great, but you can't keep that feeling. It isn't something that sustains itself for very long. So, most tyrants, it seems, live paranoid lives. They experience endless fear and anxiety, which is why they have to kill so many people. Saddam Hussein was obviously trying to kill off anybody that threatened him because he was so frightened, and he, had every, and he had every reason to be. You can control people with fear, but there's always going to be somebody who isn't frightened of you, and you have to find out who that is and then get them. 
Just think what it would be like to have a mind like that. You wouldn't have very many pleasant moments. So that's uh, some reflections there. Uh, one of the um, <coughs> very uh, touching uh, dialogues you have in the in the Pali Canon. Uh, actually, we we used it as a uh, um, in the the last chapter of the book Ajahn Pasana and I did called the Island. Uh, the the title of that last chapter is called Ah oh, What Bliss, and uh, it's a, a dialogue between the the uh, the Buddha and uh, a monk. Uh, in this monastery, and uh, this monk had been a uh, uh, ruler of the Sakyans, and um, Badia was his name, and not the Badia who was Buddha's original uh, uh, monastic disciple, but a different one. And so he'd, he'd given up the, the uh, rulership of the Sakyans and become a monk. And so then some of the other monks in the monastery were getting worried about him because he was walking around the forest going, oh, what bliss, oh, what bliss, oh, what bliss. And they thought, oh, he's really lost it. You know, he's he's remembering all his concubines and the life in the palace, and he's kind of totally spaced out, and, and he's um, <coughs> he's forgotten the life of a monk, and he's he's really um, <coughs> he's really lost the plot. So they were concerned about him, and and they uh, so they told the Buddha, and the Buddha said, "Ask him to come here, and, and uh, I'll see what it's about." And so then the Buddha uh, sees him, and he says, "Is it true that as I've heard, you've been walking around the forest saying, oh, what bliss! Oh, what bliss!'" And he said, "Yes, that's right." He said, well, what's, what's the reason, what's the cause that you've been doing that? He said, well, when I was a ruler, I, <clears throat> in my throne room, I had guards by my throne. I had guards at the door. I had guards outside the door. I had guards on the outside of the palace. I had guards at the gate. I had guards on the outside of the gate. And still I was frightened. You know, every, you know, every, every day I was, uh, uh, was um, living in this state of tension and terror. And now I live in the forest. I've got my, I don't need any guards at all. And so, uh, and uh, my my uh, life is uh, is uh, full of of ease, and uh, I have a, a mind like the wild deer. That's why I'm walking around saying, "Oh, what bliss! Oh, what bliss!" Because I, I'm free of all of the uh, those those fears that were created by the the kind of high position that I had. So it was a bliss of renunciation, is what he was experiencing. So he wasn't crazy at all. In fact, he was extremely sane. <laughs> It's also interesting uh, with those reflections when we um, chant the sharing of blessings. You notice that uh, we, we consciously share the blessings of our life. We're sharing our good karma, those who are friendly, indifferent, and hostile. So uh, the highest gods and the evil forces. So we're sharing the merit of our lives. We're sharing our good karma with, with Hitler and Pol Pot and Mao Zedong and uh, all of the, the kind of uh, destructive and uh, incredibly harmful malicious people over the, uh, around the world. And so our Judeo-Christian thinking and the conditioning that we have in the West is like, no, they should be punished. I'm not going to share my good karma with him. You know? <laughs> what a waste of good karma. You know, I want to, that, that's uh, gonna just only going to be um, uh, misused. But the, the principle that's there in that it, uh, is, I feel, extremely significant. And I feel it's very good to, to recite those verses in English so people can understand them rather than just in the Pali. Because what it means is that you're not condoning the action of those who are, those who are hostile, the people who are destructive and harmful and uh, polluting the world or, or causing wars and conflict and, and uh, taking advantage of others in, in, in uh, terrible, uh, painful ways. You're not condoning their activity, 
but you're recognizing that more hatred is only going to make it worse. That if you uh, you just add fuel to the fire by uh, by piling on more hatred and aversion, and so that um, the the conscious sharing of your good karma with the highest gods and the evil forces, uh, other beings, is that uh, you're not saying you're glad that they did what they did, but you're prepared to recognize that um, in their uh, <coughs> if they are um, a living being, then they are worthy of compassion. They're worthy of of kindness, and that uh, the um, the potential that there is as a living being is that they can uh, with the right conditions and the right effort they can pull themselves out of that so one again one of the interesting uh, aspects of buddhist uh, mythology is that devadatta who was um, the buddha's cousin and, and uh, who ended up causing uh, a lot of harm he actually tried to kill the buddha he injured the buddha by pushing a rock off a mountain and, and, and uh, uh, it uh, uh, broke apart and then the rock cut the buddha's foot he deliberately caused the division in the Sangha. He split up the Sangha to, uh, on purpose. So he created incredible uh, bad karma. But according to Buddhist mythology, Devadatta, he's in the hell realms at the moment, but uh, in his next lifetime in the human world, he'll be a Pacheka Buddha, be like a, a Buddha that doesn't start a Sangha, but a fully enlightened Buddha in his next lifetime as a human being. So someone who has, who has uh, he had the good karma to be born in the Buddha's family and to be around the Buddha's teaching. But he created the bad karma of being jealous and destructive and and uh, proud, and uh, and ended up following those impulses. But uh, I, I know it's mythology, and you might say, "Yeah, well, you can't prove it." And well, I don't like those hells, and I don't like rebirth and all that sort of stuff. But even the story is uh, meaningful and potent in that it's recognizing that nobody is beyond redemption. That uh, there is there's no such thing as an evil being. There's no such thing as, a, in Buddhist uh, psychology, there's no such thing as an absolute evil. Um, so you have Devadatta down in the hell realms who will be a Pacheka Buddha in his next lifetime. Similarly, uh, Mara, you know, in the, in, again, in the Judeo-Christian model, you have, uh, you have Satan, Lucifer, who is the, sort of the, the, the ruler of the underworld and the, the, kind of in, in, the embodiment of evil and, and destructiveness. And uh, according to the Christian mythology, uh, uh, that uh, you know, the Satan is going to be down in the hell realms and, uh, and is stuck with that for eternity. And uh, there's this in Paradise Lost, uh, John Milton's uh, very fine epic poem about uh, the Garden of Eden and so forth. There's this very poignant moment where, where Lucifer, Satan, has been damned for eternity. And he says, all good is lost to me. Therefore, let evil be my good. So he can't do any good. He's damned forever. There's no goodness he can do. So he's okay, well, all that's left to me is to be evil. All good is lost to me. Therefore, let evil be my good. So you feel quite, oh, poor guy. <laughs> in, that, in that kind of structure. So in the, in the Buddhist mythology, you have a, a very different picture where Mara, similarly, is the, uh, is Mara literally means death, like Amaravati, the deathless realm, or Amaro, Amara, and means deathless. Mara is death, Amara, deathless. So that the, <clears throat> you have similarly this embodiment of evil and, uh, and destructiveness, and, uh, <clears throat> and yet 
within the uh, the um, the stories of the scriptures, you know, there's a very interesting encounter with Mara and the Buddha's second disciple, Mahamogalana, called the it's in the middle length discourses, the Mara Tajaniya Sutta, re- rebuke to Mara. So it starts off with Moggallana having a stomachache. There's this weird feeling in my guts. Like, what, what's you know, what's this strange feeling in my guts? And he he looks, and Moggallana was blessed with the great psychic powers. So he looked inside himself. Said, "Oh, this isn't an ordinary illness. This is Mara. It's got into my guts and it's causing trouble." And uh, <clears throat> and so then he he says uh, he kind of directs his mind into. Into inside him and to, to Mara and said, Mara, I know that's you. Stop causing trouble. And leave me alone. And then Mara thinks he can't know that I'm here. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm very secretive, and he's just guessing. You know, it can't be the fact that he really knows I'm here. And then Mogalana says, I know it's you. <laughs> yeah, stop causing me trouble. And, and do you know how I know it's you? Because I recognize you. And then he tells this really interesting story. How he said, you know. <clears throat> In the in the the lifetime of the Buddha uh, Konagamana, I think it was, then um, the uh, the one day the Buddha Konagamana was walking through the village, and uh, Mara the Mara Dusi entered the mind of a shepherd boy and caused him to pick up a stone and throw it, and he threw that rock and it hit the head of the chief disciple of the Buddha Konagamana. And then the Buddha Konagamana turned around and said, uh, Mara Dusi, you know, no moderation. And then uh, the ground opened up and then that Mara was swallowed into the, the hell realms. He said, and do you know how I know that story? Because I was that Mara Dusi. And you know how I know you? Because Ma- the Mara Dusi had a sister called Kali. Kali had a son, and that's you. So I was your uncle. I know you, Mara. Don't think I don't know you. So again, you might think, hang on a minute. Is that really true? How do you prove it? But even if it's just a story, you have uh, the the second disciple of the Buddha, Mahamogalan, who's a great arahant, and, and you know, close to the Buddha, a great saint, and a sort of hero of the Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist world. And uh, I kind of quote, unquote, a few lifetimes ago, he was the embodiment of evil. So he was Mara a few lifetimes back in the time of the of the Buddha Konagamana. Mogalana was 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 Satan. So even if it's just a story, to me that's a really important and powerful story that says no one is beyond redemption. So if you've been sitting here during this winter retreat thinking, ah, it's no it's no use. It's no use. I'm, it's, this is I, I've had it with this. This this mind is impossible. I'm gonna, I, I give up. I'm not reading anybody's mind. <laughs> and a few of you think, how did he know? You know? It's just statistics. You know? uh, it's not worth it. Uh, I give up. I'm going back to the beach. Or, <laughs> or at least to the pizza parlor or something. You know? Something. You know, just to have a bacon sandwich. <laughs> you know? just, just something that's different. You know? And um, that uh, we can look at our mind and feel that you know, it's really hopeless because of the um, the kind of defilements and habits and, and difficult karma that uh, we're experiencing. But you take a, the, that, that myth, say, well, if the embodiment of evil in the universe, if Mara, within a few lifetimes, can turn it around and be uh, 
a chief disciple of the Buddha, I can probably deal with this restless habit with fidgeting on my cushion. <laughs> I can deal with this obsessive thought or this kind of compulsive worry or this endlessly planning and calculating mind. I can probably cope with that. Yeah. I haven't done anything as bad as being Mara. I haven't thrown any, any rocks at any arahants recently. Probably. Most of us haven't held any, caused bloodshed of any arahants. So uh, that, even if it's just a story, it's a, a useful story. Because it, it uh, very clearly indicates that nobody is beyond redemption. That there's, you, you can't get so lost that it's not fixable, within a, uh, at least within a few lifetimes. And so I feel that uh, setting that, that in place as a sort of psychological model is something very helpful for us. Uh, it's not just wishful thinking, but it's also saying, well, rather than believing my, my critical and self-destructive despairing thoughts, Maybe it can be viewed in a different way. Maybe that, that, that things are, are are not so beyond redemption. That if I, and so that encourages patience, resolution, and uh, the continuity of effort and practice, which is always going to be helpful. So I'll leave it there for today. Amen.